Welcome to Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Great to be back. And Haley Knopf. Hey, hey. Guys, I have a critical update. This is to a story we covered back in episode 307, that was over the summer, about the fate of the phrase Taco Tuesday. Oh, yes. Let's go. How could I forget? Uh, no one should forget. It's very important. It's been weighing on my, on my <laughs> mind since then. We need the update. Let me put this to rest for you. If you recall, Taco Bell had kicked up a big fight against a couple of restaurants over the trademark registration to that phrase. We talked about it as an offbeat segment over the summer when one of the restaurants, Taco John's, which is based in Wyoming, gave up their registration. But my state of New Jersey had a holdout. Gregory's Restaurant and Bar held a trademark for Taco Tuesday for years and years. This goes back quite some time. That is until now. Gregory's has agreed to cancel that trademark registration. And they basically bowed to the pressure of the fast food giant who really blitzed an all-out campaign, uh, publicity everywhere, about how no one should own Taco Tuesday and how that should be for all of us to enjoy. And it worked. But I do have one little quote that I thought was funny. Gregory of Gregory's was baffled by all of this over the summer and said, I'm just sitting back and watching it. It's unbelievable the effort that Taco Bell's putting into this. I cannot for the life of me understand why it's so important to them. <laughs> well, that's kind of a funny thing for the previous owner of the, of the mark to say, <laughs> don't, wouldn't you think? Well, look, I'm just happy that we can all now embrace Taco Tuesday in any marketing we so desire. That's free for everyone now. Taco Tuesday. Yeah, and um, I don't know if anybody reached out to LeBron James on this. I know he was uh, an interested party. Uh, I'm sure his Instagram stories uh, will be replete with Taco Tuesday references without fear of litigation. So he's going to go out there and live moss. It's going to be great. He is, yes. He's, he's living moss every day. Not just, not just Taco Tuesday, I think every day. Well, while I was delighted to bring that update, we do actually have a really serious main segment this week. Haley and I got a chance to interview a couple of the attorneys that are featured in an HBO documentary about the Unite the Right rally that resulted in the death of one of the counter protesters. And then there was legal fallout. And it's just a, it's a fascinating documentary about bringing justice to that incident. And Haley and I had a great talk with the attorneys. Greatly look forward to hearing that. Everyone should definitely stick around. But first, I did want to get to some news. We start with what is a potentially huge shakeup in the real estate industry this week as a federal jury handed out a nearly $1.8 billion verdict to a class of home sellers. And the, the, the finding behind this verdict was basically that the National Association of Realtors and uh, a couple of brokerage companies had effectively conspired to keep realtor commission fees artificially high. And now this verdict was described in the legal press as something of a wake-up call for the industry, as you know, home buying affordability is at its worst level in several decades. Prices are rising. Mortgage interest rates are also rising. Now, it also doesn't figure to be the end of the legal misadventures of the powerful realtor lobby anytime soon. So in addition to this verdict, which is very interesting in its own right, there's lots of other layers to peel back here. One of my besties is a broker, and this is all she's wanted to talk about. The industry is a buzz with this one. But let's get into the particulars about the suit itself. What, what was happening here? 
So it began, as I say, as a class action against a number of real estate brokerage companies and most crucially, the National Association of Realtors, which is one of the country's largest and most powerful trade groups. And they have for years been fending off accusations both from the government and from private plaintiffs that they are conspiring with these companies to basically keep commissions very high as the barriers to home ownership come down with the rise of the internet. The idea of just finding a listing on your own and doing business without a realtor or a broker or whatever it might be, that was sort of the, the central claim against them, that they were trying to safeguard their little fiefdom over this industry. Now, along the way, uh, when this class action got underway, two brokerage companies, Remax and the company Anywhere Realty, which includes subsidiaries you have definitely heard of, Coldwell Banker, Century 21, and Sotheby's, they all settled out to the tune of about $140 million in damages. But the NAR, the Realtor Group, and uh, Home Services of America, and Keller Williams, those are brokerages, they pressed on to trial in Missouri federal court. And basically, it's a complicated antitrust case, but at the center of the lawsuit is the what has effectively become the current industry standard across many regions that requires that home sellers pay their own agent's commission, just typically between 5 and 6% of a home's selling price, which is then in turn shared with the buyer's agent. And over the course of the trial, plaintiff's attorneys argued that this model basically suppresses competition by making it difficult, or in some cases impossible, for buyers and sellers to negotiate for lower rates. They basically, in many instances, are alleged to have basically just said, this is the standard, and it has to be either 5 or 6%, and you have no wiggle room on that. And that the, the central allegation is that that was very clearly anti-competitive. Alex, you, you and I are both millennials in major <laughs> metropolitan areas. I, for one, have given up any dreams of home ownership uh, <laughs> in my life. But, but this is uh, one of those issues that is near and dear to the millennial heart, I, I would say. It sounds like they've made, they made a pretty compelling case to the jury here. Yeah, of course, the great Jack Donaghy told us on 30 Rock, the middle class is dead, you'll be renting forever. I think about that often. <laughs> but um, anyway, yes, back on point, they do appear to have made quite a case to the jury. Now, the arguments took place over the course of 12 days, like I said, in, in Missouri federal court. And after only about three hours of deliberation, the jury came back with a $1.78 billion verdict in favor of the class. And... I'm obligated to mention here, as was mentioned uh, in much of the coverage, under federal antitrust law, they could be eligible for treble damages to, to triple this level, which could top $5 billion if they go that route. Good Lord. Now, that's quite a, quite a bit of change. And unsurprisingly, the NAR and the brokerages really came out in full force against the decision. They said uh, it would prompt customers to forego the use of a realtor altogether when executing what is a very complicated and high-stakes purchase. They vowed to appeal both the verdict on the actual merits and also move to shrink the jury's damages finding, which I think is reasonable to say indicates a very long appellate fight ahead of us that could last many months and potentially years. Now, if the verdict does stand, though, I wanted to swing back to something I said before about those those settlements that were struck by Remax and Anywhere Realty that could offer a glimpse as to the kinds of 
industry changes that could come about if they're actually forced to sort of pay these damages and change change their practices. Uh, to exit the Missouri case, those two brokerages agreed to not set any minimum commission requirements and also to remove uh, software that allows the companies to filter home listings by a broker's compensation. Again, effectively locking it in as a fixed price instead of something that's up for negotiation. They also agreed to make clear that broker commissions are negotiable and not set by law. Now, that was under the terms of a settlement at an earlier stage. You would figure that the plaintiffs, should they prevail even on appeal, will have even more leverage to extract perhaps even more sweeping changes if they are successful. But that's there's there's many roads to travel before we get there. But I thought that was interesting, that those were concessions that some companies have made to exit the litigation. And the ones that remained are now facing a threat of really paying out the nose. As if that's all not enough, you did make indications here that this is part of a, of a bigger legal picture. So what should we know about that? Yeah. So while the, the National Association of Realtors uh, and the two brokerages that are still in this Missouri case, they will continue to fight this verdict on appeal, like I said. And while they're doing that, they'll also be preparing for a trial in an Illinois federal case that covers a lot of similar allegations and involves, uh, it involves the NAR and many other brokerage companies. But crucially, that covers a far greater number of markets spreading from like, it's like, like 20 urban industrial markets from like Philadelphia all the way down to Miami. And certain analysts have said that the damages in that case could total into the tens of billions of dollars if the jury should make a finding similar to the Missouri case. So that is sort of coming down the pike here, which is something to keep an eye on. The other thing is that the NAR is also clashing with antitrust enforcers at the U.S. Department of Justice. And the group settled a civil case with the feds near the end of 2020 that included several policy changes that were supposed to restore some competition. Uh, and again, it, it dealt with a lot of these commission fees and some other, some other things. So that was a settlement that was struck in 2020. But then, crucially, after Joe Biden's election, the DOJ decided to change course and revisit that case. And they basically made a motion to unwind that settlement and restart that civil litigation in earnest. Now, a federal judge has blocked that attempt to reverse the settlement but the government is appealing that. So we're also deep in the weeds of a fight to potentially revive a government suit. And that would run in parallel to these class actions from private parties. Now, all told, I think it's then safe to say this is quite a busy time for the realtors' attorneys, and it figures to, uh, to stay that way for the foreseeable future. I'd like to turn us now from giant industry news for real estate attorneys into just big legal industry news. The New York-based law firm Strick & Strick is dissolving, ending a 147-year run. The firm has had a pretty tumultuous year, including a high-profile set of departures, failed merger attempts, and now it's calling it quits. 147 years. Man, that is it's a long time. How did we get to this point? What all, what all went down? Primarily, everyone left. Strick had 210 <laughs> okay. attorneys. Yep, do it. <laughs> yeah, it, it is rough. So Strzok had 210 attorneys in the U.S. at the end of last year. That was down from 283 in 2021. But the firm just kept shrinking. And prior to the vote to dissolve, only 130 lawyers were listed on the firm's website. 
The firm's been bleeding lawyers for a while. More than a year ago, 40 of them uh, in a restructuring team departed for Paul Hastings. And that just seemed to kick off an exodus. More high-profile lawyers at Strick left for other firms after that. There were, in fact, some merger talks to try to resolve this. The most prominent were probably with Nixon Peabody. But back in July, Strick confirmed that those talks had broken down. Later, talks to merge also broke down with Pillsbury Winthrop. And other rumored merger partners approached by Strick similarly just did not pan out. So they voted to shutter the firm. And now a majority of the firm partners that are left are expected to move over to Hogan Lovells. That's part of a large-scale group acquisition into that firm. Well, as Haley and I were referencing there, it is tough to stay in business if you're bleeding lawyers at a, at a rate like that, sort of well over 100 departures without sufficient replacement within like two calendar years. Tough to keep the doors open. Um, we talk about firm closures, especially when it's a fixture like, like Strook and Strook was. Um, and I don't know if that's just, if that's a one-off or if there are any lessons to take away from why they couldn't either keep talent or replace it at, uh, at a sufficient pace. Uh, what's the read there? Well, that exact question is something that Shumei Dong, one of our great reporters at Law360, explored. And Shumei found that industry watchers identified some key missteps that could have doomed the firm here. The firm's leadership may have delayed necessary changes for too long, failed to address some internal things like succession planning, and didn't explore potential mergers in a quick enough fashion. So I did want to do sort of what you said there, Alex, go over lessons. So I have three, three big lessons that anybody listening, make sure your firm is taking heed of these so that you don't become the next long standing firm to actually not make it because it's not guaranteed. The first one is to diversify. And what I mean by that is that Strick was known primarily for their expertise in two areas, restructuring and real estate. You can kind of see just on the face of that how those two practice areas were a bit of a counterbalance pivoting through various markets. So when the bankruptcy group left the firm, it left Strick really exposed to a down market when the real estate practice would not be as lucrative. So that's a big lesson about, you know, don't do that. Don't just have two big practice areas if you're a firm of any substantial size. You need yeah. to sort of baffle against various markets. Yeah, you can't have it where the two big powerhouses are subsidizing the rest of your work, effect, you know, effectively, you've got, you're way over leveraged there in terms of talent. So yeah, yeah. That, that, that would make sense. And that counterbalance is really an, an interesting point too, where if you're counting on one to offset the other and vice versa, if one of them leaves, you're just in real trouble. That seesaw yeah. doesn't work anymore. The second lesson is, and I, I know this is going to sound a little straightforward, to beware of departures, but it's more than that. It's to beware of a departure tipping point. So I've talked throughout this segment about how Strook lost key personnel. And it's pretty obvious that those kind of departures chip away at things like client relationships, revenue generation, all the stuff you would expect. But the bigger lesson is how these kinds of departures can hit, like I said, a tipping point where even mergers become more difficult. Because if you lose too many of your top attorneys, you're just not attractive as a merger partner anymore. What would people want with you? No one works there anymore. Like, bro, you don't, you don't have any more bankruptcy attorneys <laughs> left, man. I mean, that's like half your thing. So <laughs> here's a quote from Kent Zimmerman. He's a strategic advisor to law firms. When a firm starts to have a trickle of regrettable departures turn into a stream, a crisis of confidence and leadership can develop. And that's a common thread in most law firm failures. So 
What should firms do if they see one big sign of this, you know, maybe one group leaves or one really prominent rainmaker leaves, that's when they should really double down on talent retention. The first sign of a major stress like that, firms should really laser focus on keeping the other people they have. That makes sense. And I think the other factor that we've been talking around here a little bit is that they did make an effort to be scooped up by someone else, but that was probably done in vain. And there's probably some mitigation they could have done if they were a little more aware on those first two points that we discussed. That's exactly it, Alex. And that brings me to the third lesson, which is don't be on the market too long. So not to tap in too much to our first news story about real estate, but the metaphor really works here. So Strzok likely went wrong in not trying to merge even sooner than it did, according to a lot of industry experts. When a firm has an extended search for a merger partner, the appeal goes way down to scoop them up. It's a lot like how if you list a house on the market and it just sits there for too long, that leads potential buyers to worry about what's wrong with this house. Why doesn't anyone want to live here? Is, is this it house haunted? haunted? Yes. <laughs> is I'm this so, I knew we would, haunted? Yeah, wow. I knew we would both be on that same page. Happy Halloween, belatedly. <laughs> <laughs> it's spooky season in my heart year round. But yes. seriously, if a firm is casting this net over and over trying to get someone, it doesn't make them feel like a get. And so that has played into this too, that they perhaps waited too long. And by then, they just were looking for for too long a period for a merger partner. So long story short, if you're sitting at your firm right now, look around, see if any of these things are happening because it's, <laughs> it's usually not too late to change course. You just have to do it earlier than Strzok was able to. More than six years ago, white supremacists gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, carrying torches and marching in protest of the removal of a Confederate statue. The next day, a white supremacist drove his car into a crowd of peaceful counter-protesters near the site of the rally, killing one and injuring dozens. That led to a successful but years-long legal battle to hold the rally's organizers accountable, a fight that is at the center of the new HBO documentary, No Accident. Joining us today are two members of that legal team, Michael Block and Benjamin White. Mike and Ben, welcome to Pro Se. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Hi, yeah. Thank you for having us. Before we get into the Charlottesville case, I'd like to hear a little bit more about how you got involved to begin with. Mike, I know you were a uh, public defender in the Bronx, and it seems like uh, Robbie Kaplan may have swooped in and poached you, perhaps, and... Ben, you were an associate at Sullivan and Cromwell and also uh, did some clerking for the Second Circuit. How, how were you both brought aboard? So, yeah, I, I was a public defender in the Bronx for seven years, and um, I had done some civil litigation before that. And I decided that I really wanted to, to broaden my practice um, to do more civil rights litigation in addition to in addition to criminal defense. And I knew of Robbie Kaplan as as a real civil rights pioneer hero in this country. And I knew about the Charlottesville litigation going on and thought that would be a real dream come true to work on. And so I 
applied to Kaplan and Kaplan Hecker and sat down with Robbie. And she said that she wanted me to try the Charlottesville case. And so it was, it seemed like a match made in heaven. And I immediately said yes and got to work on the case. And yeah, I was a a corporate litigator, as you mentioned, daily for a number of years at Sullivan and Cromwell. I left to go clerk for a few years, actually. And while clerking, the world had changed around us. This was when Donald Trump was elected, kind of right in the middle of my three years of clerking. And I felt an active need at that point to participate and get involved in efforts to fight what I thought were pretty pernicious efforts that were going on across several fronts, one of them being the activities of white supremacists and the people who inspired and carried out the Charlottesville events. And so in looking for what to do with my law degree after clerking, I put a lot of thought into where I could use my efforts best to kind of join the fight. And in the interim, Robbie Kaplan had started her firm that seems to want to be at the forefront of these types of fights. And so I really didn't have much of an application process. I knew I wanted to work there. I knew I wanted to be on the front lines of kind of the biggest fights that we were um, posing in areas that really needed it. And so I (laughs) kind of begged Robbie to let me come work for her. She let me and ultimately let me do some great work with her, including working with Mike on the, the Charlottesville case. I want to get into the particulars of the case itself because it is fascinating how this all played out. But I do just want to ask one sort of personal question first. I know that you both have expressed a motivation to be involved in this kind of litigation and in some senses an obligation to do that with your law degrees. But it doesn't come without some some personal turmoil and a lot of strife here. How did you guys reconcile that, especially with a case that was obviously from the very beginning going to be extremely high profile? Yeah, for me, um, as you can see from the documentary, I ate my feelings and soothed my wounds with gummy bears. As we all do, <laughs> although you had a much better reason than most of us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think it in a lot of ways comes with the territory of being a litigator and particularly litigating civil rights litigation is you sort of jump into some really troubling, messy areas and and join forces with people, i.e. our clients who have gone through some obviously horrific trauma. And for sure, the Charlottesville litigation was four years of being immersed in the, the most heinous, hateful rhetoric, speech, images, et cetera. And I think you try as best you can to try to, to to kind of protect your emotions as much as possible. But at the end of the day, it's it's obviously really not about us. It's about our clients. Our clients have gone through far worse than um, than what we're going through. And I think you just try to learn to stay focused on the end goal and work with wonderful colleagues as we had to support each other and keep each other up. Okay, so you guys have that strategy and that idea of supporting each other and focusing on that end goal. Let's get into some of the mechanics of this, because one of the things I really loved about the documentary is that unlike some things that are centered around legal action, this one showed how workmanlike the job really is and like every step to get to the the ultimate result we had here. One thing that really struck me is that the Department of Justice could have swooped in and they could have had their own criminal conspiracy charges, but that didn't happen. So how did that decision by the Justice Department play into your strategy in the case and what you had to do on the civil side? I think Robbie makes this point in the film. There were 
some criminal prosecutions coming out of Charlottesville, but there was no there were no legal actions that centered on the organizers of the rally. And it was 2017 when Jeff Sessions was in charge of the Justice Department. And it seemed pretty clear based on the political climate that there was not going to be accountability for the organizers of the rally. And I think that was a huge motivation for Robbie to jump in and find folks that had been injured in the rally that could assert claims against the organizers. And so it certainly was a big impetus for bringing the case that we were really filling a legal gap that was necessary to hold the organizers accountable and not just individuals that committed individual crimes. Well, yeah, so we here at Pro Se are fairly nerdy about all things litigation. And one thing that I couldn't help but notice that the documentary kind of glossed over was the pleading stage. Were there any you know, interesting fights or developments that played out during the pleading stage that people should know about? Yeah, I I think there were a few, (laughs) to to say the least. I think, you know, some of the more colorful ones, or at least a a few of the more colorful ones are are hinted at in the documentary. And I think focus on the idea that we were going up against adversaries that weren't themselves committed to wholesome compliance with the discovery process, to put it lightly. Um, relying on a lot of the tools available to civil litigants to hold accountable people who just frankly refused to participate in the civil case at all. And in a case like this that depended so much on documents, communications, in the control of the other side, it was just absolutely imperative that we spent as much effort as we could in making sure we had everything they had. And that's not easy when you have these adversaries that are destroying their devices kind of making representations about what they have that aren't necessarily accurate. And so there were a number of, I think, uh, colorful anecdotes throughout the case that are, one, I think, educational for lawyers looking to figure out how to bring these types of fights, um, but also were just, you know, intense and vigorous in the moment. You know, one I can think of in particular was our, our effort, you know, in the film, they, we focus, uh, the film focuses quite extensively on an audio recording of Richard Spencer, where he's making some really colorful, pretty hateful remarks that was played, you know, Mike could correct me, I think it was played several times at trial, sometimes by Richard Spencer himself, because he realized, seems to realize how how awful it was for him. And in the recording, he's just saying exactly what the theory of our case was, which was that they were really motivated to do what they did because of the identity of the people that they were trying to stop. That recording was kind of a key piece of I think at least one major discovery fight, one including, you know, the colorful character of, of Milo Yiannopoulos, who we ended up subpoenaing once we learned he was in possession of, you know, recordings and materials that were directly relevant to the case. And, you know, that required us to bring a separate action in the Southern District of New York, given um, jurisdiction requirements, we had to do that. It required us to actually bring Mr. Yiannopoulos under oath in front of a federal judge in New York to ask questions about documents in his possession and control that really shed significant light on the story of what happened in Charlottesville. Um, we were ultimately victorious in that fight. He actually put, he, he fought us pretty aggressively, invoking privileges that are designated to protect reporters' information, which he at first did successfully, but after you know subsequent rounds of briefing and argument, we were able to convince the court that although 
Mr. Yiannopoulos was claiming to be a journalist and a reporter with information that was significant to our case, the importance of those materials to our litigation outweighed you know, the value he has in maintaining the secrecy of his sources. And so we got a ruling from the court here in New York that allowed us to learn the, the sources of the information Mr. Yiannopoulos had about kind of key information in the case, including the tape capturing Richard Spencer's pretty hateful remarks. So you had to fight very hard to get that. But the documentary does reveal one big boon to the case that you didn't have to fight for at all. And that was when the discord itself was publicly leaked. How pivotal was that to everything that played out in your case and in the strategy? Because, you know, that is it's a treasure trove that that just became publicly available. Yeah, that was as you say, pivotal and a huge break for the plaintiffs. The Discord servers contained a lot of the planning that went into Charlottesville. And they, the defendants thought they were private invite-only servers, which I think gave them some comfort in speaking more candidly about what they intended. Um, and so when the server was leaked, which was before we filed the complaint, it captured and, and exposed a huge part of our trial theory, which is that the defendants conspired to commit racially motivated violence and that the defendants were not just in Charlottesville to spread hateful beliefs, but that they were in fact planning and conspiring to commit violence. And so when the server was leaked before we filed the complaint, it gave us a huge sneak preview into a lot of what the planning evidence really consisted of um, and it allowed us to put great detail into our complaint, which ended up being just a, a massive, meticulously detailed account of what went on in Charlottesville. And so that was really a huge break for the plaintiffs. Yeah, it's stunning to watch that moment in the, the film to realize that it's all sort of just laid out in that way. I'm also curious about prepping the plaintiffs who had to give testimony in the case, because as you said earlier, Mike, they obviously suffered something extremely traumatic. So there's sensitivity there. But on top of that, we have a lot of the litigants here that were pro se. And they really, it seems from watching the film, that they really went hard at those plaintiffs. So tell me about how you prepared them to endure that and prevail. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked about that. I mean, that was something that we talked about a lot was how to prepare, to help prepare our clients uh, to testify effectively, to testify against the actual people that victimized them and to do that in a way that did not re-traumatize them. And it was a, a careful balance that we talked about a lot and worked very hard to achieve. And I guess I'd say a couple things about that. Number one, a lot of that work, I think, and I think this goes into sort of just being client-centered advocates generally, happens kind of from the very moment that you meet a client and start to gain their trust. I mean, by the time we got to trial, we had really deep, I think, personal relationships with our clients. And we had just the utmost admiration for them. I think they had great trust in us. And so you know, I think that went a long way in being able to kind of have the right touch in helping them prepare in a way that didn't, like I said, re-traumatize them. Part of what 
we have to do in that process is obviously prepare them for cross-examinations, including, you know, mock cross-examinations and things like that. And the film sort of touches on this a little bit. I mean, we we attempted to to work with them in mock cross-examinations that tried to resemble what we thought might come at them. How close were you to that? Because it seems like there were some real curveballs in the kind of rhetoric and questioning and grandstanding that went on during all of this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think there's any way that we could have actually replicated what they faced at trial. You know, Devin and Natalie were cross-examined for hours upon hours upon hours in ways that were demeaning and aggressive and and really vicious. There's no way that I think anybody could really replicate that or should replicate that. And so a lot of you know what they did really heroically at trial was just dig deep and stand up to their attackers. But you know, so we did our best to try to anticipate what was to come, but I think there's no way to really like I said, replicate what they actually faced in court. I will say one thing just to to note in terms of not re-traumatizing. I also know, and I I really admired this, I know that Christy Jacobson and her team also worked very hard to tell this story without themselves re-traumatizing the plaintiffs. And I think they I think they told this story incredibly powerfully. And I think they were able to to work with the clients in a way that similarly felt like a partnership. Yeah, for any of our listeners that haven't yet seen the movie, it's both insightful and moving. I I would really recommend that everybody check it out. Absolutely. Along those lines, how did having a documentary crew following you around affect your work? I can't imagine having cameras and eyes on you while you're doing, you know, really challenging, really sensitive work is um, easy. One thing that was critical, you know, talking about trust, I mean, we also came to deeply trust the filmmakers as well, because they, I think their vision was aligned with ours, which was to amplify the evidence and the story of what happened to Charlottesville. And so that was really important to know that if there's going to be somebody in the room capturing what you're doing, that we share a vision of the importance of what we're doing. And so, I mean, it's obviously, it's different. (laughs) It's certainly not every trial where you contend with that. And there were legal issues that we needed to be careful about in terms of protecting privilege and work product. And we were very meticulous about that. But I guess at some point over the course of time, you know, we started to get used to doing our work with filmmakers in the room. I want to get you guys out on one final sort of bigger picture question here. This may go down as one of the most impactful trials either of you is involved in in your career. What kind of lessons can you take from something like this that's so big, so important, and that you won to apply that to the next bit of social justice or civil rights litigation that you encounter? What did you learn from this that you're going to take to the next fight? That's a big question. Um, and I think hard to answer because there there are so many lessons. I think we've we've <laughs> talked about this before that I think you could teach entire courses that cover not just things like you know civil rights and topics that actually touch on the merits of what occurred, but also procedural issues, constitutional issues, um, and practical considerations about you know Mike. I think touched on 
in response to your question, Amber, exactly what it took to prepare the clients to testify in court in response to questions by the very individuals that attacked them. And I think Mike's answer was spot on. I'd also add that it just takes a massive amount of preparation and forethought and time. Um, and so preparing for the unexpected, which this case was all about, all about preparing for the unexpected, because who knew what these defendants were going to say from day in and day out, requires just an unbelievable amount of thoughtful preparation and time. And here you have the balanced risk, as you do in a lot of these types of cases, of not re-traumatizing your, your clients. And that twin effort is incredibly difficult. And I think one that takes a lot of nuance and experience to get just right. And I think, um, I think we were able to do a good job of that, that here. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is, as cliche as this is going to sound, is it takes a village. You know, there were four law firms involved in this effort and unbelievably brilliant, hardworking, passionate lawyers who are also great people that um, that really shared a common goal. You know, Robbie Kaplan that we've talked about is is a visionary. Karen Dunn is one of the best trial lawyers in the country, as is Jessica Phillips and Bill Isaacson. Alan Levine and, and David Mills from Cooley are spectacular lawyers and people. And then, you know, in each one of the firms, including Ed Kaplan, had a huge team working together. I can't remember how many people we had in the war room at, in Charlottesville, but it was it was more than 20. And so I think one thing I take from this is just what a huge team of passionate, great lawyers can do working together. And it really did take everybody's effort and every minute over the course of four years to tell the story to the jury in a way that that made it successful. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for coming on to talk about this. It is so nice that we can leave this segment that has so much that is traumatic for the individuals involved, but also for the country as a whole, and leave it at a place where we're talking about how smart, dedicated people can really fight the good fight. I appreciate you being on the Per Se. Thanks so much. Really appreciate you guys having us. Thank you. Likewise. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And Alex, I think you're bringing one that I'm going to enjoy, but really this feels like it's for Haley. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, strap in here. So just a few weeks ago in this very space at the end of the show, I promised the listeners that we would not force any legal news stories about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. And I, un, un, unless there was something germane to talk about. And we're holding to that promise. We're not doing that. There is, however, because this does not involve Travis Kelsey, we do have some interesting Taylor Swift news, and it relates to uh, legal academia. Because if you are a student at the University of South Dakota Law School, you're a second or third year law student starting in the spring semester, so just, so just around the corner, you will be able to take a law school course that is titled the Taylor Swift effect. Yes. Okay. Let's go. Here's my big question. How long until I can get an LLM in Taylor Swift? Because yeah. that's when I sign up. Those are important questions. I mean, that's how 
this is how things like that start. You know, someone getting creative with the curriculum. And in, and in this case, that someone is, uh, as I said, University of South Dakota law professor Sean Kammer, who is, uh, this is all based on, uh, this was reported in Reuters today. I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing from their coverage here. Um, he said that the, the idea for a Taylor Swift-themed law school course came to him after he attended the Eras Tour in Minnesota. And this is where I wanted to throw it to Haley. Haley, I know you attended the Eras Tour. I did not. I did. Did you have any epiphanies, legal, uh, professional, personal, otherwise? I mean, those, uh, those shows are really long, so it gives you lots of you time to time. think about stuff like this. Yes. Yeah. Can't say I was thinking about anything legal while I was there. Well, but, that's probably good. I mean, you should. Yeah. You need to. You need to bifurcate your interests but there. Certainly. I mean, it was the production level. I was just thinking about how many people are involved in the whole thing. It was pretty crazy. But I did want to share. I actually had probably must have been ten years ago now when Taylor was in the midst of a battle with Spotify. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't putting her music up on Spotify. 1989, I believe, had just dropped. And I hadn't decided if I was going to pay for it or not. <laughs> and I had a dream that Taylor Swift performed 1989 from start to finish in a house show, like in someone's basement. And I was able to go and I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Like I can listen to the full album without having to... <laughs> Buy it on iTunes. Quite the complex. And that, work I consider around. that to be a to be a legal a legal Taylor Swift issue of sorts that made its way into my sleeping life. Yeah, well, that's how you know. That's the sign of a true Swifty. It's coming to you in dreams. I'm interested to know what exactly is covered in this class, though, because when we've had and it, believe me, we've tried to bring Taylor Swift into pro se as often as possible, <laughs> and when we've managed to do it, it's typically been over copyright stuff. I mean, that's the classic yes. way yeah. musicians make it onto pro se because we're talking about copyright issues. Is that what the class is mostly going to cover? Yeah, I was. it was very apt of Haley to mention that there have been, that she's had dust-ups with like streaming her music. And now, of course, she's re-recording her masters for basically her entire discography up to a point. Um, this is, uh, again, according to the Reuters report, the course will look at the musician's interactions with the law, such as her re-recording of six albums and related copyright issues. Now, that I think is very interesting and is, makes a lot of sense if just for an elective law school course to, if the point is to kind of make it accessible and make it sort of engaging for people, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Kammer also, though, said it, it'll examine how individuals' own experiences and beliefs shape how they interpret the law, much like how they interpret Taylor Swift's song lyrics. Oh, and he, boy. And here's where I have some commentary because, um, and Haley, I mean, you can speak to this too, Haley. I, I, this has always been the part of like Taylor Swift fandom that's very fascinating to me because I think Taylor Swift is not what I would call an artist of great subtlety. She writes lyrics that are like very apparent on first she blush. She does. Yeah. Yes. Very straightforward. It's forward. me. I'm the problem. It's me. That's not subtle. <laughs> I sometimes dream that my daughter-in-law killed me and then because she thinks yes. she's going to get money in the will and then <laughs> they are all sitting around reading the will and they say and I'm laughing up, up at them from hell from hell and it's like I don't I don't listen to that it's a fine pop song I don't listen to that be like god I wonder what she could be talking about it's like <laughs> the most literal thing I've ever heard I yeah it's bizarre and I do want to clarify okay <laughs> I'm a fan of her music 
I don't think I culturally identify as a Swifty. Now, see, that is the— Oh, that that's is a fine the, line distinction. It's because I don't—yeah, I don't do the weird, like, oh, her favorite number is 13, so such and such re-release is going to happen on the 13th of— You know what? You bring up a really good point. I think <laughs> instead of law school, we need a criminology course where it's like unlocking the code of Taylor Swift as if you were finding CSI-level clues. Swifties would be great at that. They would. That's where they lose me. I'm like, you're really diving deep, folks. Yeah. And it's it, it's funny that you mentioned that too, Amber. This this was, I'd be curious to know if you had any kind of like off the wall classes in your law school career. Having never attended law school or cultivated a um, law school curriculum, I know that like this was mentioned in a lot of coverage of this story. The, um, the Wire has inspired a lot of criminal law classes. Um, and uh, I think the University of Virginia Law School also offered um, engineered a corporate law class around succession, um, which is Ooh. fairly, fairly intuitive. I have to say, I would have liked law school better if I'd had some of these options. <laughs> I mean, Yeah, you don't speak highly school, of it. No, yeah. my law school curric- curriculum was stuff like, I took an ERISA class, you guys. I don't yeah, know. Well, I did it oh, wrong. Amber. I did it wrong. Um, yeah, clearly, I mean, I actually still like Arissa, so maybe I did it right. Unclear. <laughs> but I think this— That's e- Stockholm Syndrome in action right there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying that's not an important part of the law. It's hugely important. But, it's, it is yeah. a little silly. I mean, we're poking fun at this, like, oh, Swifties get a law school course, whatever, whatever. But I think that it's a great way to get people engaged in some of the more esoteric areas of the law, right? To, like— Make it relate to something that's a little more fun. And then you get into the deep issues from there. Honestly, isn't that the model for this entire show? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I also think it's a huge boon for the, I mean, let's hear it for the creative minds at the University of South Dakota Law School, which I mean, you know, I don't, we don't talk about them a lot. Um, We don't put them on the map. Yeah, exactly. Not one of the, I'm not trying to like throw shade over there. I don't, I've, it's, I'm sure they run a fine outfit, but they're not one of the the power brokers of legal academia. And, you know, when you when you hit your wagon to, to T-Swift, maybe maybe the winds are going to start uh, changing in that regard. Look, so if we'll it see. can work for um, getting me to know who a football player is, then that's certainly right. it can put a law school on the map. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, uh, thought that was an interesting one. So, uh, yeah, again, if you're a student there or a prospective student there, uh, and, I mean, honestly, if you want to reach, maybe if you t- take the class, Watch this space. We'd love to hear from you. I can't wait for that in a future episode. Thank you so much for bringing this one, Alex. Appreciate it. Not a problem. Not a problem. Always a pleasure. And thanks to you, Haley, for the rest of the show. Thank you. We also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Michael Block and Benjamin White. And our contributing reporters, Matthew Perlman, Shimei Dong, Abra Ko, and Andrew Carpin. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Mercano. If you like Pro Se, we'd love it if you left us five stars and a written review. It definitely helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we've talked about, that's when you go to our website, law360.com slash podcast. Thanks, and see you back here next week.